Our scripture for this morning's teaching comes from the Gospel of John. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with everyone. My name is Damien, and I'm a senior pastor, and I am grateful that I have the privilege this morning to start us in this new sermon series that we're calling Table Talk. Now, the reason we're calling it Table Talk in part is because while it's very common for Jesus to be depicted having meals with people in the Gospels, this is a unique meal. First of all, we don't often have the words in this detail that Jesus shared at his meals. And here we have five chapters of them. And then, of course, also this is at the very end of Jesus's public ministry. This is the farewell discourse. This is the last supper. You've heard it called many things. And if you've been with us this year, we've been walking through the gospel of John already. We started in John chapter 6 talking about metaphors of believing. And now we're still in John. We've been walking through John, but we are starting this new series. So in the larger context of the Gospel of John, uh, as I just mentioned, this is the farewell discourse. We see these in the Bible. We, We see them in different places. When people are dying or about to die, they'll call those who are closest to them, and they will give them their last words, maybe speak a blessing over them. But This, of course, is different because nowhere else in the Bible do we have an example of that where the person who is giving the farewell blessing or discourse is about to willingly walk into their death. The other examples, for example, if you're reading community Bible reading with us, we just read of one this week, right? Where one of our, one of the fathers of our faith, the patriarch, uh, calls his family together and, and speaks to them each individually, And at the end of the passage, it says that he then pulled his feet back into bed 
So he, so he's on his deathbed and he turns and he speaks. And when he's done, he pulls his feet back up into bed, lays down and dies. But here we have Jesus who is speaking these words and rather than pull his feet back into bed and lay down and die is about to get up from the table and walk to his death. So of course, this is very different in many respects. You know, recently I uh, have come to understand in a deeper degree how bad I am at asking for help. And when I say this was a, this is uh, less and less, but it is a true blind spot. And of course, you know, the thing about a blind spot is you can't see it, but you're suffering from it nonetheless, right? And so as, as I've come to see instances in which asking for help never came to my mind, so this is something different than knowing you should ask for help and not. This is having no idea that you should ask for help and not, which is something else. I, I think some of you think you're really good at asking for help, and you're probably better than me at asking for help. And yet all of us, at some level, we will come to a place where it will be challenging for us to ask for help. My sense is that those of you who do think you're good at asking for help, and those of you who are good at asking for help, are good at asking for help in your weakness, in your need. You're good at recognizing your need. You're good at recognizing when you've come to the end of your rope. Or maybe you're so good, you realize if I don't ask for help now, I will come to the end of my rope, and so I better ask now. But what about asking for help when you feel strong? Are you good at that? What about asking for help when you think that you can do it on your own? What about asking for help when you understand in the grand scheme of things, you are not self-sufficient. That's harder, isn't it? Now, I'm bad at both. But today in our passage, we are invited to consider what it looks like to receive. What does it look like to truly receive help, both in need, but also when you feel strong? What does it look like to live a dependent life, even in your strength, even in your youth? What does that look like? I think admitting that we are weak is a prerequisite to receiving in the gospel. Even when we feel strong, can we admit that we have need? Are we willing and able to receive the service of others? That's a real question. Are you able and willing to receive the service of others? That's important because in our passage today, we see that Jesus comes to expose our need and then to meet it. He comes to expose your need when you're strong, to expose your need when you're weak, to expose your need when you're numb, to expose your need always, and then to meet your need. He comes to meet it with his love, and that's really what this passage is about. This passage is actually a prologue to the farewell discourse. It's actually an introduction to the conversation that will happen over this meal that Jesus has. This is the very first thing that happens when they sit down when Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And we'll see that this love that Jesus has is so pure and so shocking that it can be challenging to receive. It can be very challenging to receive Jesus' love. Now in verses 1 through 5, we'll see uh, the first observation that I want us to pay attention to today. 
And that is the purity of Jesus' love. This pure love, this shocking love that's hard to receive. In verse 1, the scene is set. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, there's some ambiguity on what it means that he loved them to the end, but it's probably intentional. The question would be, did he love them to the end in a temporal sense? In other words, he's about to die, so he loved them all the way up into his death. Clearly, if we, as we read the rest of the gospel, the answer to that question is yes. He loved them to the end. Even when he's on the cross, he's still loving his disciples. So he did love them to the end. But one other way to understand this is as an adverb or some way to describe the way in which he loved. So you could say, not only did Jesus love them to the end, till his last breath, but he also, in the way he loved them, showed them how great his love is for them. To the end, to the utmost. And it probably means both. That as Jesus is about to do what he is about to do, He is loving them as completely as he possibly can and as for as long as he can. And what I want to show is the purity of Jesus' love in at least two ways. The first thing I want us to notice is that Jesus loved despite of what he was facing. If you look again, I read it. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Now, if you read the Gospels, you'll see that There were times when it looked like Jesus was about to be arrested. Jesus was about to be murdered. He was about to be carried off. But then it doesn't happen. And then what would be the phrase? Because it wasn't his time. But now, after three years of it not being his time, it is his time. And Jesus has been preparing his disciples for what it means, by which way, by what way, he will exit and go back to the Father. And it will be a way of great suffering. It will be a way of great pain. And Jesus knows, and he's been trying to describe it to his disciples. So here Jesus is, in this meal, knowing what's coming. Now, I don't know about you, but when I have something big coming up, let's say uh, preparing for a sermon, or uh, let's say giving a talk, or maybe for some of you an exam, or a big business pitch, or something. Let's say it's Sunday night, and you have a big day the next day and you're sort of walking around, what's the look on your face? What are you thinking about? Are you present? Probably not. Your mind is probably somewhere else thinking about what you haven't done or what you need to get done. You're you're running through all of the events of tomorrow, especially if you dread it, or especially if it's going to be challenging. And yet, what do we see Jesus doing? Despite of what he was facing, despite of what Jesus was facing, He's completely present with his disciples. Jesus, okay, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, that entails suffering and death. He knew this. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You see, Jesus knew his time had come to depart. And yet, he was present It shows his love for his disciples. It shows his love, how great it is, how great his heart is toward them. Notice, even in our confusion and our pain, 
we find it so difficult to love those we are called to love, don't we? And Jesus, rather than being distracted, loves. I often think about how self-absorbed I am. I often think about how caught up in my own world that I am, that I, that I fail to love those around me. And then I think, well, I have a lot going on. There's a lot going on. I, I, there are so many people who I'm called to serve. There are so many people, and yet, and yet I also am a person. I also have my own issues and my own needs. And then I, I get really, I get a lot of traction there. I get a lot of traction when I get to that point. And it just sort of turns me in and turns me in. And yet I look at Jesus and I invite us to look at Jesus. And despite of what he was facing, he loves. His mind is on his disciples. I am so prone to only offer love when I get something in return. What about you? I'm so prone to love. I I will get out of myself if I think by loving you, somehow I can get something in return. That might pull me out of my shell. But yet Jesus will get nothing in return. That brings us to the next observation is that not only do we see the purity of Jesus's love and that he loved despite of what he was facing, but also Jesus loved despite of who he was. And John makes this very clear. Verse three, Jesus knew something else, didn't he? Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. John wants us to make sure that Jesus at this point knew two things. One, the suffering he was about to undergo. And yet, despite that, Jesus's focus and his love is so pure. It's on the disciples who can give him nothing in return. And then Jesus, John wants us to know that Jesus knows in this instant that the father has given all things into his hand, that he has all authority. He didn't need anything from anybody. And yet he loved because he wanted to. And for you and I, as followers of Christ, he loves us because he desires us. And notice he desires us not because we're desirable, but because he wants to. And and of course, that's still true. If, If Jesus is able to love his disciples with a pure love that gets nothing in return when he's about to face the cross, now that he's ascended into heaven, how much more then does he give us his attention as he prays for us and loves us and wants our best? You see, you and I often love because we need or want something out of another person. Have you noticed It's easier to love someone when they're loving you back, when they are desirable, when they offer you something. And yet Jesus in this instance shows that his love is so committed and so pure that even though he gets nothing in return, even though his object of love, the disciples, they are not desirable. And yet he gives of himself willingly. And in fact, there could be a whole sermon on Judas And I'm going to mention him a couple times as I am now, but just mention him. Look what he he did. The one, he, he also knew something else, right? He knew who was to betray him. And yet he loved anyway. So it wasn't just his disciples who were trying their best, even though they couldn't contribute anything to Jesus and said, oh, I feel bad for them, I'll love them. But he loved Judas, the one who would walk away. 
And so the first thing we have to see in verses 1 through 5 is the purity of Jesus' love. Look at verse 5. What did he do? In spite of what he was facing, in spite of who he was, he, press, he pushes back from the table. And look what he does. He lays aside his outer garments and takes up a towel like a servant. Now this is, this is really important because Jesus is breaking social norms in a lot of ways. You know what it's like when people break social norms? You, you know how that feels when it's happening in front of you? It does not feel good. I, I recall a time when I was talking with a dear brother about um, his ministry and about how he had come to a place where he realized he needed to surrender to God. Now he, he meant it and he shared in detail. It wasn't just a phrase to say. It wasn't, he wasn't trying to be pious. He was genuinely experiencing a renewal, personal renewal. And we're in a room filled with other pastors and he's talking to me. And as he's describing what he needs to do to surrender, he gets on his knees. Like he actually, I'm not even going to do it. I, I mean, what if I got on my knees right now? Even if I got on my knees, what would that be like to you? You would think, ooh, that's too much. I mean, to talk about it is one thing, but to do it, to get, to get on your knees on stage or, or in the midst of a group of people, it, it sort of makes me feel like, mm, that's too much. I don't like that. I'm uncomfortable. Please stand up. Okay? This was worse. This was way worse. Jesus takes off his outer garment. If I took off this jacket right now, that would be something. I remember being last summer at an event where the speaker's flight was delayed. And he, he, he came in the room as we were finishing the last announcement. And I saw him come in the room and he had been running to, to get this event. And he walks up on stage just to give his presentation. And he, in about two minutes in, he says, oh, I'm so hot. And he takes off his jacket and he had orange suspenders on that did not match anything else. And when he did that, everything in me for about 10 minutes was like, for the love of God, put your jacket back on. I am so distracted right now. So now you know, now maybe you feel, you're thinking of your own examples of, of what it's like when social norms are broken. But what did Jesus do? Verse 5. Verse 4. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. This is what a servant does. And he took a towel and he tied it around his waist. Now this is, I want you to do this now. I really do. Close your eyes. I want you to put yourself in the situation. There's silence. No one knows what Jesus is doing. Everyone is confused. Why is he standing? Everything is at the table that we need. We've prepared the meal as he told us to. And then Jesus gets up and he lays aside his outer garments and he picks up a towel and he ties it around his waist. And now you're looking around the room trying to find a servant who should be the one doing this. And then he picks up a pitcher of water and you hear it now. You hear it pouring into a basin. You hear the sound of water. And then he walks up to the first disciple and gets on his knees. And he takes off the sandals, which are dirty. And he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, if your eyes are still closed, you can open them. 
Now listen, this brings us to our second observation. To receive Jesus's love, that's challenging. We think it's easy to receive his love. We think it's easy to receive his service. It's humiliating to receive his service. It breaks all social norms. It breaks every rule that you've been taught since you were a child. I heard this illustration once. Imagine if I brought someone up on stage and said, do as many push-ups as you can. And you did as many as you could, and I said, are you done? Can you do any more? And you said, I can't do any more. And I said, what if I give you $500 and I take it out of my pocket and I show it to you? Can you do any more now? I can do, I can do more. So you get down and you do three more. And I mean, you're really struggling. You're to failure. And you say, I'm definitely done now. And then I pull out $5,000. And I say, can you do one more? You say, maybe I can do one more. And you struggle and you struggle and you get one more. And that keeps going. I keep upping the ante and you're taking all this money until finally you get to the point where I offer you a million dollars, but you, you cannot do it. You can't do a push-up. Okay? At that moment, I then can say, now you're ready to understand grace. Now you're ready to understand what it means to receive from Jesus. You're not ready to receive until you understand you can do nothing. No matter how much, how big the carrot is that I try to move you along with, you can do nothing. And until you get to that point, you're not ready to receive. That's challenging. Do you and I believe that? I don't, most of the time. I think Jesus needs something from me. He needs something from me. And yet he needs nothing from you. And he'll take nothing from you, which is exactly what we're about to see. Look at verse six. He came to Simon Peter. Now everyone was silent. Everyone was silent because they're confused. Okay. Yet he gets to, to Peter and Peter speaks up as he often does. And he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now I'm going to read it as the emphasis is in Greek. Okay. Lord, do you wash my feet? You wash my feet? No. Jesus answered him, what I am doing to you, you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, what? What did Peter say to him? Okay, Lord, I trust you. You shall never wash my feet. Pulls his feet up. It's like my two-year-old daughter. Let's go to, let's go to bed. No, I'm walking away, right? Peter, he's just like you and I. Lord, you wash my feet? You mean I offer nothing? I bring nothing to you? Never. Never. And he thought he was being humble. I guarantee you he thought he was being humble. He thought he was spiritually mature. Listen, the rest of these jokers, they may be stupid enough to let you wash their feet. Not me. I'm passing this test. I get it, Jesus. I get it. And Jesus says, you are the most lost, Peter. Now he doesn't. I'm reading in a little bit, but John certainly makes it sound that way. Peter cannot handle it, as is often the case. Therefore, he speaks up and he's very passionate about it. This is the reason why. Doubtless, the disciples would have been happy to wash Jesus' feet. Absolutely. 
because they understood the power dynamic. Listen, they wouldn't have been able to conceive of washing one another's feet. Okay, this was a task reserved for the lowliest, low, lowest of menial servants. Peers did not wash one another's feet, except very rarely, and it would have been an extreme mark of love. And some Jews actually insisted that Jewish slaves should not be required to wash the feet of others. It was too low for them. It was too low even for a Jewish slave. So that means that you needed to get Gentile slaves and probably women and children at that. And maybe students, maybe students. But here Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. Now, Peter's response shows us the great challenge of receiving Jesus's love. To receive this love might sound easy, but it requires exposing your most undesirable parts to the one who would serve you, okay? The very notion of master-servant or teacher-student relationship is turned upside down. Listen to this from a commentator. The demand of the gospel is that we need Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, to wash our feet and to serve us. That's the demand of the gospel. The demand of the gospel is not get your act together. Get up and serve God. Stop serving yourself. The demand of the gospel is sit down, do nothing. The son of man must come now and serve you. He must wash your feet. You see, the pride in religion would have us think the exact reverse, wouldn't it? That we must serve Christ. That's pride. And this is what makes the gospel so radical. And I mean that in the truest sense. It cuts to the, the very foundation. It's not Christ, but we who need to be served. Most, most of us are, are used to having a master that we are employed to serve them. But Jesus invites us so he can serve us. You so, so you see, when Peter, when Peter chastises Jesus, when Jesus is trying to wash his feet, what looks like an objection that comes from modesty is really disobedience and self-righteousness. Where do you show self-righteousness in refusing Jesus to wash your feet in specific areas? Where do you know you need him, but you will not let him serve you there? What is the sin that you will not let go? Because you say, this is too much, Jesus. This is too much. You can't take this one from me. I have to hold on to this one because it makes me feel better that I beat myself up about this. And Jesus says, no, I need that. I need to wash it clean. You see, at that moment, Peter was actually rejecting the grace of God. See, the Christian must first hear that according to the gospel, Jesus is placed below us to serve us. In the gospel, Jesus is placed below us to serve us. And the required response, first and foremost, is obedience. And that is obedience to let him serve us. It's not we who are assigned to exalt Christ. That's the Father's job. And he does it. And Paul tells us that he does it in Philippians 2.9. Our role is to be served by Christ and to obey his lordship, even by letting him serve us. John Calvin says it this way, Until a man renounces his liberty of judging the works of God, However, he may strive to honor God. Pride will always be latent under that semblance of humility. Imagine you're in a hospital 
Some of you don't have to try very hard because you've been here. I, I never have been. But imagine you're in a hospital. And imagine because of whatever ailment you have, you're in the bed and there is a bedpan. You know what happens in a bedpan. And imagine that you're so mortified that someone is going to have to come change that bedpan. That you're trying to amp yourself up to let this happen. You're trying to amp yourself up to, to go, undergo this humiliation. And so you finally get the nerve to press the call button so someone will come in and help you. And to your surprise, the person who comes in is in a suit. And the person walks up and you're confused. Now you're really humiliated. And you see that this person has a name tag and you realize, putting things together, this is the CEO of the hospital. And you're silent. You don't know what to say. And this person, he or she, takes off their jacket and hangs it up. They unbutton their sleeves and roll them up. And they come to you and say, I'm here to serve you. Imagine that. You wouldn't expect that. You'd expect a nurse and maybe a nurse's assistant. And even that would be humiliating. You would be apologizing the whole time. And yet the CEO of the entire hospital comes in and serves you. What keeps you from letting Jesus serve you day in and day out, moment by moment? Is it because you don't let people serve you because you're afraid you'll be betrayed? Have you been betrayed before? So, so you must grab for the upper hand and hold on to power? Is it because it won't fit the story that you have of needing to earn love from your own achievements and your own loyalty to Jesus? No, Jesus, I need to be the one serving you. That's how this works. And Jesus says, no, like, like that hospital CEO who, who you didn't expect, who, who you know this is all wrong, it's upside down, that's how I need to serve you, Jesus says. Or maybe it's hard for us to let Jesus serve us moment by moment because we need to be special. We need to be special by not needing his love like some other people need his love because we're just not that needy. We got it together a little bit. We've been at this a little bit longer. We, we figured this out. Maybe this person next to you will one day become as mature as you and not need Jesus's service as much. You know it's foolish. I know it's foolish. Maybe it's because being served in this way seems overwhelmingly vulnerable. And anytime you've been this vulnerable before, you pay. And you'd rather pull back. You'd rather not receive this love because it hurts too much. What if the rug gets pulled out from underneath me again? You see, I think that many of us lose the wonder and the freeing power of the finished work of Christ for us because we fail to see Jesus as a, the chief servant. The one who gave his life for you the one who seeks to serve you, who still is praying for you right now. This is the Lord of the universe, yes. But this is the Lord who serves, the one who loves deeply, who's committed to our good. 
So how do you see him? Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. What does he mean? He means that you'll have no inheritance, Peter. And so then Peter says, oh, okay, well, well, then wash my whole body. And Jesus says, the one who bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. It's enough to give me your feet, Peter. Peter, give me your feet. Okay, thank you. He cleans Peter's feet. He says, you're clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. So again, this could be another sermon, but Judas, he washed Judas's feet. He depicts what he said, love your enemy, and he does it. It shows the heart of Jesus. It shows the purity of his love, doesn't it? It wasn't just that he was going to get nothing from Judas. It was that he was going to get betrayed by Judas. And he still loved him. And so it can be a challenge to receive Jesus' love, especially when we see how pure it is and it makes us feel uncomfortable because we know how undeserving we are. But that leads us to the final and shortest observation, and that is the necessity of receiving Jesus' love. Now, this is uh, starting in verse 12. It's, there's even a, ch- a paragraph break. Jesus is now sitting back down. So when he, wa- when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You see, many of us would rather get, get on with this part of what Jesus said. We want to wash others' feet. We want to be doing stuff. We don't want to be receiving. That comes more natural to you. But there are two realities that we must see in this passage, in this prologue to the final discourse, how Jesus sets the tone. And they're in logical order. The first one is that we must receive the washing of Jesus. And only then can we follow in the example of Jesus. We first must receive the washing of Jesus. You see, to serve as Jesus serves is to serve when we get nothing in return. Nothing. And where will you get those resources? How will you know how to serve and love others when you get nothing in return? Only if you've experienced that love before. Only if you know what it's like, the gift to receive when you can offer nothing in return. Where will you get the resources to serve an undeserving spouse? They, they are not desirable. They do not deserve your love. And yet you love them. What about a child who's rebellious or going through a challenging phase, offers nothing and takes everything? Where will you find the power to love them? This is real life, okay? It's not just abstract. It's not mere metaphor. Where are you going to love them? Where are you going to love the the sick spouse when you're called upon in your vow, in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want? Only if you've been loved and are every day receiving the service of Jesus. Not just once, but right now, every day. First thing, constantly throughout the day, Jesus, serve me. Jesus, wash my feet. I need you here. I need you right even here to wash me. What about a coworker who is impossible? Or a boss 
who is cruel or an enemy when they don't deserve it. In order to love these people, we must first be loved and served in the way that Jesus would say, let me serve you. And it needs to be said, Jesus' love is a washing love, a love that seeks our good and our growth, and our love for others must be the same. Love is not merely tolerant, accepting whatever the other wants. It's a washing love. It's a love that sees what should be, what ought to be, and what can be, and speak into that even when it risks relationship. What did he tell Peter? Peter, you have a choice. You can let me wash your feet or you're out. And Peter made the right choice, didn't he? Wash my feet, wash my whole body, Jesus. So we must receive Jesus' washing love. So therefore we must love others with this washing love, a love that is not merely tolerant, but wants and seeks the best for someone else. Jesus says in verse 12, do you understand what I have done to you? Do you understand And if you know these things, you will be blessed. And listen, as the disciples could not even begin to get their mind around how the Messiah must go to the cross, there's no way they can understand this. Peter and the others will understand later, verse 7 says, or better translated, after these things. But it's even in the foot washing that we see the precursor to the passion, the cross. And this is why we have to start this series with the foot washing. You see, this self-emptying at the foot washing will climax at the cross. Both are humiliating and both are hard to watch. Both are hard to receive. But Jesus says, after the cross, Peter, you will understand. And so as you and I walk through this series in Lent, this season of self-reflection, where is it that you refuse Jesus' service to you? Where is it that he's asking to wash your feet, to wash you, to change you, to serve you? It's only then that you and I can turn and serve with purity to others. Let's be this people. Let's go deep in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to you pleading, show us where we refuse your service to us. Jesus, we see you, the king of all the earth, serving. Forgive us that there are times when we feel entitled to be served. Show us those places. And yet also, Jesus, show us false humility when we refuse to let others serve us. Wash us from this pride. Give us a pure heart that we would seek you. Seek your example, but seek you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.